church, uh, please turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 12, commencing from verse 1. These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess. All the days that you live on the earth, you shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord God in that way. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God would choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and your contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. Verse 8. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing what it, whatever is right in their own eyes. For you have not as yet come to rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving to you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to that place, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants and your female servants, and the Levite that is within your towns, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord would choose in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. Our second reading for today is from the book of Romans. That's near the back of your Bibles. So turn with me to Romans chapter 12, starting from verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of God. Our Heavenly Father. We thank you that over the past few weeks, you have spoken to our hearts. You have called our hearts to trust you with all of our fiber and being. It is not enough to just simply come here week after week and acknowledge that you exist and to tick it off. But our hearts, our whole lives are to be devoted to you. Bring to our, our memories today... Uh, uh, the, uh, bring to our vivid memories all that Jesus has done 
And so that as we hear and receive this word this morning, that you would be at work in us to show us how to properly relate to you, how to worship you with all of our being. Father, we ask for your Spirit's help to soften our hearts, to open them to hearing this word, to being challenged to live in response. Holy Spirit, take this word that I'm about to preach, make it clear, and then apply it powerfully in our lives. And Lord Jesus, do this today for your glory as we gather in your name. Amen. We're going to spend a bit of time today talking about the topic of worship. And so let's begin with the definition of what we're talking about. What are we talking about when we say worship? Here's a working definition. Uh, I'm just going to say it once, and then we're going to work through it uh, in some ways through the entire sermon. Worship, to show deep respect and adoration to God. One of the most fundamental acts of a believer is to worship God, to show deep respect, profound respect, and adoration to God. Now, with that definition, let me ask you a big question for today. How do you know if you are worshipping God correctly? How do you know if you are worshipping God correctly? Let's go back in time. SLE Church, 15 years ago, 2008. I was still a young, fresh-faced ministry trainee. The grey was not coming in just yet. I was at church early and noticed a much older woman sitting in one of the seats over there, uh, quietly sitting there waiting for the service to begin. I approached her, said hello. I found out that she was attending, um, and she had been visiting. She was visiting us for the first time, uh, but she had been attending the Chinese service uh, that runs at the same time. So I asked her innocently, how have you been enjoying the Chinese service? To which she replied, enjoy? We don't come to church to enjoy. We come to worship God. I felt very rebuked. Now, this older woman, for this older woman, worship meant, I think, in, from what I gather in that conversation, a church service which was somber and serious. If it wasn't dignified, it really wasn't worship. Fast forward a couple of years, SLE Church 2019. I think it was wintertime as well at that time. I was chatting with a newcomer, first time visited to church. I asked him how his experience of the service was, and he replied, the sermon was great, but the worship was okay, so-so. I asked him, what did you mean by that? And he replied that in his old church, during worship, people would jump up and down. They would have their hands up. The music would be long and impactful. See, for this newcomer, Worship was to be engaging and energetic. If it wasn't hitting his emotional spot, it really wasn't worship. Now, you could say that they were just expressing their personal preference, but you have to ask, should personal preference have anything to do with biblical worship? Now, I'm not saying one is wrong versus the other, But I'm saying that if your personal preference is for one, and you think that worship is that, then you may be wrong. So how do you know that you are worshipping God correctly, and not just according to your personal preference? In our passage today, Moses outlines what true worship is. 
Right? He has finished his big appeal to their hearts, to the hearts of Israel, to love God with every fiber of their being as they listen and obey, to God's, word, obey God's word. And from chapters 12 through to 26, he outlines for the people what it looks like to be the people of God what rules and statutes they are to hear and obey as they enter the land. Over the last few chapters, he said, hear God's rules and statutes and obey them, and now he will lay them out. And so in our chapters 12 to 16, Moses outlines what worship looks like, and he gives five marks, five marks of what true worship looks like. So the first mark of true worship is that it listens to God's directions. So you can see Moses' big concern in chapter 12, verse 8. Read with me in your Bibles, chapter 12, verse 8. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today. Everyone doing what is right in his own eyes. Everyone doing their own thing. That is not good. Instead, they were to listen to where God was telling them to go. Five times. Five times in this chapter we read the phrase, they, shall, they are to bring their offerings and sacrifices to the place your Lord, the Lord your God will choose. You don't bring your sacrifices to the idols in the land. You shall not worship God in that way. Instead, listen to what God was saying, because he will choose the time and the place. He will choose that so you obey. And obedience meant getting rid of all the idols and idolatry that littered the land. Right? A bit later in the chapter, Moses points out that they have to be careful. So please pay attention here, be careful, because this is the word to God's people, but he's saying to them that even after the idols are gone, the temptation to worship them in that way is still there. Have a look again again with me at chapter 12, verse 30 to 31. Take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, how did these nations serve their gods that I, may do, that I also may do the same? You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Isn't it interesting that even after the idols are actually gone, the temptation to follow in these old ways is still there. But they must not. They must listen to God. The practices of the land were utterly wicked, even to the point of offering up their children as sacrifices in the fire to their gods. This was not how Yahweh was to be worshipped. But Pastor Steve, what about Abraham and Isaac? Didn't God request a child sacrifice? Uh, Yes and no. You see... Abraham and Isaac, the Abraham and Isaac story is meant to be read as a critique of child sacrifice. It was a test of faith for Abraham. God was demanding that he offered the son of promise. But when God intervenes and offers a ram in Isaac's place, that is the moment that child sacrifice is explicitly done away with. Humans should never sacrifice their children to God. God would be the one who would provide the offerings. See, the point of chapter 12 in general is to say that God was giving clear instructions on how and where he was to be worshipped. Israel were not to take the initiative to work it out. They weren't the ones who were trying to do things in their own eyes. They were to listen to God and follow his instructions. And if they did that, then they would be blessed. 
See, God's people must always worship God in a way that is directed by him. Personal preferences have to give way to what God says is right and true, the true way to worship him. And so God's word needs to be the thing that shapes the way God is worshipped. So the first point, first mark of true worship is that it is directed by God. The second mark of true worship is that it is loyal to God. Now, if you had a read of chapter 13 through the week, you would have known and noticed that it is shocking to read. The entire chapter deals with, uh, with warning about various kinds of people who will seek to lure Israel away from worshipping God, right? In chapter 13, verse 1 to 5, the focus is on false prophets and dreamers, right? Verse 6 to 11 gets more personal, focusing on relatives, friends, neighbours even, who want to sway them away. And then 12 to 18, uh, verses 12 to 18 focus on entire cities and towns that have turned their backs on God and are trying to influence others to do the same. And in each case, in each case, the responsibility of Israel, if they find this out, was to purge the evil from their midst. So have a look at verse 5 with me. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. Verse 8, related to your family member or friend. You shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. Verse 15, related to the cities. And after careful investigation, you are to do this. Verse 15, you, are, you shall surely put the inhabitants of that city to the sword, devoting it to destruction. That is full on. And to be honest, I kind of get the killing of false prophets and the wiping out of an entire city full of people who have turned their backs on God and are trying to lure others away. But if it was your mother, if it was your father, or your child, or your spouse, or your best friend, Moses says in verse 9 that your hand shall be first against them to put them to death. How many of us could do that? I don't know if I could do that. What would motivate an Israelite to go through with that? Moses gives two reasons. Love for God and love for your neighbor. Love for God. Check it out in chapter 13, verse 5 again. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. Same wording is used in verse 10 when it comes to putting your family or friend to death for the same crime, right? These false prophets and faithless family and friends, they're not just pursuing a different religious path. They're not just trying to work things out on their own. They were trying to move people from loving God, the God who loved them, the God who chose them, the God who rescued them, right? moving people to hating their God. These false prophets and faithless, faithless family were acting like the serpent in the Garden of Eden all over again. 
And so it was for their deep love of God that they were to obey these hard words. And it was also for the love of their neighbors. Take a look at 13 verse 11. And all Israel shall hear and fear and never again do any such wickedness among, as this among you. You notice that verse 11 says that fear is the motivator for this, right? Fear isn't always the best motivator for action. And in fact, if fear is the only motivator in life, then that's terrible. But fear in of itself isn't bad. And it isn't the opposite to love necessarily. Right? Love will sometimes use fear as a motivator for right action. So imagine this example. Imagine that you're, you've got your children with you or you're babysitting some kids and you're walking to the park, but you have to cross a really busy road to get there. And one of the kids starts making a run for the road. What do you do? I'll tell you what you don't do. You don't call to them gently. You don't go, honey, that's not a good idea. Yeah. Maybe you should consider others... I, to be with them. Maybe you could help serve your brothers and sisters by helping them across the road. You know, it's not nice to run ahead of others. You don't, you wouldn't do that. You see that busy road, you see them running to it, and you raise your voice. You snap them to attention. You put the fear of the danger into them so that they will act rightly. Jaden, stop right there. Look at the danger. Don't move until I say so. Hold my hand. And Moses is saying the same thing here to Israel. Israel, stop right there. Look at the danger. Get rid of it. Listen to my words. Fear isn't the only motivator to action in the law of God. And the fear here is motivated by love. Love for God and love for neighbor. When you see what Moses is calling on the people to do here, you can see that it's about loyalty to God, to the one and only God who loves them, who rescued them, who provides and sustains for them. He's not like the gods of the land, nothing like them at all. He doesn't demand child sacrifice. He provides the offerings. He doesn't look like the carved idol that you can domesticate and worship as you see fit. He is the invisible and all-powerful God of the universe. The God who rescues and saves, who is in relationship with his people and lives among them. So be loyal to God. God's people must always be loyal to him. Loyal above their earthly allegiances. Yes, even family and friends. It can be costly to be, it can be, costly to be one of God's people and prioritize him. Relationships are tested and can break. But the people of God must always remember what God has done for them so that they will be loyal to him. The third mark of true worship is that worshippers are distinct from the world. Now, chapter 14 contains three parts. The, uh, the first short part about uh, at the beginning telling Israel to not make any markings on their body or shave their heads. The second larger part repeats some of the food laws from Leviticus 11. And the third part which speaks about their tithes. Now if there's any parts of the Old Testament that sound completely foreign and removed from our experience today, it's these sorts of laws. Now the details of these laws are interesting. And I don't just say that because I studied a law degree and I find the law interesting. Right? 
But even though the details are interesting, we've, just got to, we've got to take a step back and survey the big picture. The idea behind it all right, is actually relatively simple. In, in the way that Israel lived, what they did with their bodies, what they ate, how they gave their offerings to God, all of that was done and in a way that showed Israel was a distinct people. Their habits made them unique so that they stood out as God's people. Their habits would not blend in with the rest of their world. But to clarify what's going on in these verses, right? so first, chapter 14, verses 1 to 2, do not cut yourself or make any boldness on your foreheads. Again, this is an extension of some of the laws found in Leviticus. Now, this has got nothing to do with tattoos, whether, with whether tattoos or shaved heads are good or bad. The key is right there at the end of chapter 14, verse 1. Have a look at 14, verse 1. Right at the end, for the dead. That's the key. It was common practice in the ancient world for people to pierce their skins, have tattoos, or shave their heads in honor of pagan rituals for the dead. So the restriction has more to do with not associating with pagan rituals, right? Not cutting themselves, not shaving their heads, showed that they were distinct from other nations. Now, just to be clear, so that the parents don't come back to me and say, Pastor Steve, what did you say, right? I am not saying go out and get a tattoo. I'm not saying that, right? I'm not saying whether they're good or bad. I'm just saying here, it's about pagan rituals. That's the restriction. So kids, don't go do that, all right? Second, chapter 14, verses 3 to 21, the food laws. It's a, it's a long list of animals that are, are clean or unclean to eat. Maybe you've read these before. But of the animals that are clean to eat, that are good to eat, you find the classics. Beef, lamb, goat, chicken. Yum! Delicious. Of the animals that you are not allowed to eat, I'm okay with that list. The bearded vulture, winged insects, the rock badger is way too cute to eat. I'm not interested in tasting any of these at all. But then on that restricted list, you also have things like pork, shellfish, prawns. Now that... I would miss. I'm going to take that down so that we don't get too hungry. But let's ask a question. What's going on here? Very briefly, it's got nothing to do with the cleanliness of the animals. It's also got nothing to do with the potential harm that comes from eating these animals. You know, so eating undercooked wild pig is actually quite dangerous. And if you mishandle shellfish, that can be quite dangerous too. But you know what can solve that? Cook it properly. Right? So it's not got anything to do with that. To make a very long story short, and you can ask me about the long story later, in the context of this passage, it's got more to do with marking out Israel as unique and distinct. Even their diet demonstrated to the world that they were different, a people holy and set apart for God. That's the main thing, being distinct from the world. Chapter 14, verse 22, 29, the tithes and offerings. The tithe was usually a set portion, like one in ten of what you were blessed with. Every religion, every religion has some form of tithe or offering to make, a way to give back to your deity in hope that you get some form of a blessing. But notice how different the tithes of Israel work. 
First again, Moses repeats that there is a time and place to bring these offerings. Three times here, he mentions that the offerings and tithes are to be brought to the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there. So you don't just bring your offering to the local carved idol. You've got to go all the way to Jerusalem to bring them. Your pagan neighbors are walking just down the road to the pole over there. You have to travel across the country to bring your offering. Second, notice... Two, that the offerings are not just so that God will bless you afterwards. Tithes and offerings are not given in order to win a blessing from God. In the middle of verse 24, Moses says that the tithe is to be brought to God when the Lord your God blesses you. So it's not once you give your offering, then God blesses you. It's not that the offering wins that blessing. It's the obedience that God has already blessed you with. You see that there at the end of, uh, in the end of uh, 1428 onwards. Right? Every third year, you could pile up the tithes in your towns and just share them with the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow. When Israel cared for the poor and the needy, God would bless their work. And in this way, the blessing was kind of circular. God would bless their work so they could be able to offer more, and care for more people. And if they did this obediently and faithfully, then God would increase the blessing of their work so they could increase their offering and their care. This made Israel unique and distinct from the world. What they did with their bodies, what they ate, how they gave to their God made them distinct. Which leads to the fourth mark of true worship which is generosity. If Israel were faithful to God and they enjoyed God's open hand of blessings to them, then they needed to have open hearts, open hearts and hands towards their poorer brothers. Uh, chapter 15 covers two big acts of generosity. Uh, the first is the release of debt every, uh, in chapter 15, verses 1 to 11. Every seven years, you had to release your any debtors. Uh, it was called the Sabbath year. And so someone comes to you and borrows money, they got to pay it back, but anything unpaid was to be completely forgiven by the Sabbath year. Now, if you're quietly doing the math in your head, then that means if you borrowed money in the sixth year, you're laughing because you love this idea. If you borrowed money in the sixth year, then you've got maybe 12 months later when all your debt's released. Now, I know people here are looking to buy a house. Gee, wouldn't this law be handy? It would be tempting for a creditor to withhold a loan, wouldn't it? Sixth year. The seventh year is rolling out round. It would be very costly to give a personal loan right now. But look at what Moses says in chapter 15, verse 7. If among you, one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart and you say the seventh year, the year of release is near and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother and you give him nothing... And he cried to the Lord against you, 
and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. So you notice the, the movement of giving in, the, in that passage. In verse 7, the Lord your God is giving you the land. He is giving you with an open hand. And so in verse 8, I want you to have an open hand to your brother. Giving generously is an imitation of God. And notice that it's not just about the, uh, a matter of logic of the giving. It's the, the logically, it doesn't make sense, financial sense, to loan when the Sabbath year is rolling so closely. It's not a matter of logic. It's a matter of your heart. See in verse 9, take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. Again, with the heart. Generosity, real and true generosity, flows out of the heart. A heart that loves God with all its strength, soul, and mind. And a heart that is so filled with the love for God and neighbor that there is no space to hold a grudge against your brother in verse 10. Generosity flows from this heart that is not begrudging. Generosity that trusts a massive promise from God. Again, have a look at the second half of verse 10. Because for this... The Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. You see that astonishing promise? This is a small thread that runs through the Bible. It's a promise that if God's people are generous, like really, really generous in caring for the poor among them, if God's people have wide open hands to give then God would open up his wider and larger and bigger hands and pour out more blessings on them. This is where the prosperity gospel gets it wrong. The prosperity gospel is a half-truth masquerading as the entire truth. The half-truth is that if you give, then God will bless you. That's only half the truth. Here is biblical prosperity. If you are faithful and generous, God will pour more into your life so that you can grow in being generous and faithful. We do not claim blessing from God. It is not a biblical act to claim blessing from God. All blessing from God is given by his gracious hand. To claim it, is to go beyond our authority and to act in a non-humble manner. And these blessings are not just material blessings, not just a bigger bank account, but all your work is blessed. There's more time, there's more energy, there's more capacity to do what? To love and serve the poor and the fatherless and the widow and the sufferer in our midst. Now, what strikes me about this command as I read through is that there's no mention of why the poor are poor. In in fact, there's no judgment on them. There's just a simple, a plain acknowledgement from Moses that there will always be poor people among you. And so God's people were to take care of their own. I'm struck also by the fact that the emphasis is so much on God's people to trust God's promises. 
that if they soften their hearts towards their brothers, if they open their hands and give generously and being willing to forgive a debt, you would only do this if your heart was truly captured by God. You would only do this if you worshipped God as infinitely more valuable than your financial security. That's the first big act of generosity here, the release of debts. The second big act of generosity has to do with slavery. Now, when you hear the word slavery, what, what image comes to your mind? Slavery. Do you think about black people in chains, brutally mistreated by their masters? Unfortunately, I think this has to be one of the most presently misunderstood topics that the Bible speaks about. Misunderstood because we've taken a really horrible and depraved history of slavery, which is horrible and depraved, but then we've taken that and imported it back into the Bible. Because the actual truth is about slavery is actually so much more boring. Slavery in the Bible is actually more like employment. It's a little bit like, it's much closer actually, sorry, not a little bit, it's actually much closer to what the Singaporean students here on scholarship experience. The government gives you a loan and you are indebted to work for them for X number of years. Right? You call that bond, being bonded. Another word for that is slavery. <laughs> right? Which is why in the New Testament, the word that is translated as slave is often translated as bond servant. You're paying off a bond. When you read the slavery laws here in Deuteronomy... Nothing like the brutal slavery of the Americans in the Americas it was actually surprisingly generous. Right? Yet if, you, in, if an Israelite had a fellow Israelite slave, they were to set that slave free after six years. And not only in the seventh year had the owner had to uh, set them free, he had to set them free with generous provisions. Have a look at verse 13. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, out of your winepress. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. In comparison to other forms of slavery in the ancient world, this was incredibly generous. And again, verse 15, rooted in the fact that they were once slaves, but God set them free. That freedom from slavery, that, the generosity from God, that had to be reflected in how Israel treated their own slaves. And if they treated their slaves this way, right? and if you wanted more evidence that these laws are unique, you get the second half of verse 16 onwards, and that's astonishing. You, you had to set your, free, your slave free after six years of service, but if they loved you and they didn't want to go then they were allowed to stay. Conditions have to be pretty good if the relationship between a slave and master can be expressed by the word love. So the, the fourth mark here is a mark of generosity. Generosity in releasing debts and generosity in how they treat their slaves. And now the final mark of true worship is that worship, uh, we take, it takes worship seriously and joyfully. The final chapter we're touching on deals with three festivals, the Passover festival, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths. The Passover relates to that final night on that escape from Egypt, 
On the final day of the celebration, it was to be a serious time of thoughtfulness and reflection. Have a look at chapter 16, verse 8. For six days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a solemn assembly to the Lord your God. You shall do no work on it. The feast here of the Passover was a solemn assembly. It was a time of thoughtful reflection on the fact that they were slaves. They had to remember that, and that God had set them free. Now, the Feast of Weeks and Feast of Booths are both related events to the harvest. And what marks these harvest festivals is that they are seriously joyful in their nature. So have a look at 1611. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who was within your towns, the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow who are among you at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. Same thing in verse 14. You shall rejoice in your feast. You and your son and your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow who are within your towns. Now the fact that it's a feast is probably plenty reason enough to be joyful. But it's also commanded. God wants serious worshippers who will worship him with reverence and with joy. God wants serious worshippers who will listen to his directions. God wants joyful worshippers who are loyal to him. God wants worshippers who are distinct from the world. God wants worshippers who are generous from their heart. Worshippers who reverence God profoundly with deep seriousness and overflow with joy and rejoicing. How do you know that you are worshipping God rightly? How can you know that you're not just leaning on your personal preferences? And the answer from Moses here is as, are the same words that the Apostle Paul picks up. True worship is directed by God, involving the whole of life joyfully lived in. Before we get to the Apostle Paul, uh, I'm going to go to Jesus first. When Jesus came, he changed a few things about how worship is done. So, no longer is it tied to a specific place. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking people to worship him. The spirit and truth he is speaking about is the spirit of God given to followers of Jesus. The truth he is speaking about is the truth of the gospel. Hearing, having the spirit means that worship is not tied to a place. Those who trust Jesus from across the world can worship God. Worship is not tied to a place, not tied to this building, not tied to any building, but everywhere that Christians, that followers of Jesus have the Spirit. Having the truth means that the gospel shapes and transforms how we worship. Here's how the Apostle Paul put that truth. And as we read it again, hear the language of Deuteronomy 12 to 16 flowing in it. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Worship in truth is now to know Jesus. 
to trust Jesus, to be united with Jesus. Our worship is now the act of presenting our whole selves as an offering to God. Worship is not just about singing. It's about our whole lives lived for him. This is more than how you feel during a service. It's more than just the music. And we don't worship God as we see fit. We hear God speak through his son. And we respond. So how is worship saturating your entire life? What areas of your listening, of your loyalty, of your distinctiveness, of your generosity from the heart, of your seriousness or your joyfulness needs attention. Let's be true worshippers of Jesus today. Let me pray. Father in heaven, help us to worship you as living sacrifices with the whole of our lives in what we understand and discern in what our hearts gravitate towards and and how we live, and in our daily acts of being distinct people in your world. Let us do this all for your glory and the growth of our joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the distinctive times of our gathered worship is sharing the Lord's Supper. So we here at Esley Church invite believers to share this meal with us. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, or if you're not sure that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, please don't take this meal. Please don't open and drink and eat. Instead, please consider that invitation that Jesus gives to you of life and forgiveness found in him. We're going to begin our time with some confession, but before we do that, If anyone doesn't have these elements, feel free to pop your hand up and our host team will be able to pass you one. Now, before we get into eating and peeling, let us confess our sins. Let us reflect on our perhaps personal failure to worship God. Let me give you a moment to reflect in the quietness of your own heart what failures of worship have, have existed, not just in your life entirely, but even just the last week? How have you failed to listen to his word, to be loyal to him? Have you just simply blended in with the world, or are you growing in your distinctiveness? Have you seen in your heart a begrudgingness towards the poor among us? Is there a generosity that's flowing out? How seriously are you taking your faith? How joyful. Spend a moment reflecting on those ways in which we have missed the mark. Friends, let us pray this prayer of confession together. Heavenly Father, we confess that we have not worshipped you as we should. We confess that we have elevated our personal desires and not listened to you. We confess when our lives have not been wholly yours. Forgive us for our pride and arrogance. Forgive us for forgetting. Renew in us a desire to live wholly and joyfully for you.
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Friends, remember this great assurance that those who trust in Jesus are always forgiven when they repent. Remember that by God's Spirit and the encouragement of each other, we can live our lives wholly for Him. Remember and be assured of this eternal grace that is always with us. Remember as we now share this meal.